Well, good morning. Great to see you. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here and part of our preaching team. And before we jump into Jonah 4 today, we've got a couple of things to tell you about in terms of just church family news. Uh, the first one is that Josh Watt, who is our high school pastor and next-gen pastor, he graduated from seminary this week. He now has a master's degree in missional theology. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Uh, he's part of the Missional Training Center, which is a program that's actually accredited through Covenant Theological Seminary, Redemption Church, and a number of other churches in the Valley have helped start this. And so Josh has spent the last four years part of a cohort um, sharpening his uh, tools for ministry, and uh, we're really, really proud of him and excited for that. So that's the first thing. If you see Josh, make sure you uh, tell him congratulations. The second thing relates to next week. So if you're new with us, we own the building that is directly next door, and next week is going to be our last service in this building. And so if you are just coming, the end is near. <laughs> uh, and so next week is going to be actually a, a really uh, special and different kind of service that I think is going to be just a huge memory and kind of milestone in the life of our church. What's going to happen is actually everything on campus is pretty much going to be already moved over except for the chairs and the sound system. And so uh, when you come in next week, actually the lobby will be totally empty. All the tables and chairs and stuff that's out there will be moved over. Um, and uh, it, it's just going to be pretty stark. All the stage lights will be gone and it's just going to be kind of a good last family worship service here in this, uh, in this space. And so what we'll do is we'll meet for about 45 minutes. Uh, we'll sing some songs. I'll share some reflections from God's word just as we celebrate this season of transition. And then we'll have you go pick up your kids and then walk over next door uh, for an open house. All of our guest services teams will be over there uh, ready to greet you, ready to welcome you. A bunch of our kids volunteers will be over there uh, in the new classroom so you can show your kids where they're going to be meeting, have them meet their teacher for the summer, um, that sort of thing. It's going to be really, really fun. So I hope if you're in town that you will join us next week. It's going to be this uh, kind of milestone service. Now, here's something really important. If you're a coffee drinker, look up here for a second. I, I really need you. The, the hospitality people have asked me multiple times, multiple people have said, hey, you have to tell people we will not have coffee here next week before the service. Now, I assume that if that breaks your heart because you're so addicted to coffee, here's what else I know is true you have a coffee maker at home. <laughs> Turn it on like you do every other day and make yourself a cup of coffee or treat yourself to Starbucks or Black Rock or something on your way in. Uh, but we will not have coffee and tea and water set up here before the service. What we will do is have it set up over there after the service. And so that gives our folks a chance to practice that and try that out. So please, if you come next week disappointed that there's no coffee, you're bad, right? We told you, we warned you. Uh, that's your fault, your problem, okay? You with me? All right. Uh, what an exciting uh, season for us as a church. So Jonah chapter 4 is where we're going to be today. And uh, one of the things you know if you've been around here a while is that we are committed to the unapologetic preaching of God's word. Uh, that's our commitment. And you may wonder why. And it takes, different, it takes different shapes. Sometimes we go through a book of the Bible. Sometimes it's topical or thematic. But what we're always doing is, is sitting under the preaching of God's word. We're not getting up here and going, well, here's my latest ideas with a Bible verse to kind of Velcro onto it. But rather sitting under God's word. And if you've ever wondered why, why do we do that? Why do we approach it that way? Here's why. Uh, 2 Timothy 3 says this. The Apostle Paul writes to Timothy. He says, all scripture is breathed out by God. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training 
in righteousness. Notice four different things that the scripture does. Not every passage does all four things, but taken as a whole, the scripture does those four things. Why? That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We're trying to equip you to be faithful as God's people in this world, as his ambassadors, as his representatives. And in order to do that, you need the scripture to to teach you and to reprove you and to correct you and to train you. Now, the scripture gives a lot of different pictures of what the Bible is like. Sometimes the Bible is described as a lamp for our feet. Sometimes the Bible is described like bread that we feed on and nourishes us. Sometimes the scripture is described as a kind of mirror that we hold up to really see how we actually are. But I want to show you this image from Hebrews chapter 4, an image of a sword. It says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and this, this phrase is so key, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The scriptures are able to do what no preacher can do, what no pastor can do, what no leader can do. They can discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's why we preach them. And while different passages do different kinds of things, the passage that we're looking at today here in Jonah chapter 4 is one of these sword passages. It's a cutting passage. Now, here's the good news, is God cuts not like a butcher, but like a surgeon. So we're doing in this passage today is we're handing God the scalpel and we're saying, God, go ahead and cut, cut into the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. Make us more like Jesus. So if you find that today feels like it stings a little bit, that's why. Because this is a passage designed to cut us. Now, if you're just joining us, let me just review really quickly where we've been in the book of Jonah. It's four chapters. Chapter one, God said, go. Jonah said, no. God said, go to Nineveh. They were this uh, big, huge city that was part of Assyria that was this evil empire that had done lots of damage uh, to many parts of the ancient world, but especially to Israel. The people of Israel hated Nineveh. And so God tells Jonah, hey, go there and warn them that my judgment's coming unless they change. Jonah says, not interested, and he flees the other direction. He heads to this place called Tarshish. In order to get there, he has to take a boat. And so chapter one is filled with this big storm that God appoints that eventually leads to Jonah being thrown off off the boat in order to calm the storm. Well, Jonah is sinking, sinking, sinking down, presumably to his death, when all of a sudden God shows up, and God appoints a fish to swallow him and to save him. And so Jonah chapter 2 then is that Jonah is praying. Having been rescued by God, now he's offering thanks to God. He's, he's praising God. It culminates in chapter 2 verse 9 where he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. So the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Junior hires, that one's for you. Vomited Jonah up. All right. Chapter 3, then the beginning starts a lot like chapter 1. God says, go. This time, instead of saying no, Jonah says, fine. Fine. He's not excited. He's never been excited about this, but go. Okay, fine, I'll go. And Nineveh then says, Lord, have mercy. Having been warned that the judgment is coming, unless they turn, they turn. 
The king appoints that there's be a citywide fast, a citywide prayer gathering, a citywide kind of turning away from the evil deeds. And from the least to the greatest in the city, they turn, which is maybe the biggest miracle in this entire book, bigger than the fish. And it says in 3 verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he'd said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Think of this. One of the biggest, most vicious, most powerful cities in the world at this time. From top to bottom is turning from evil toward God. The word of God has so impacted people that the society structure is changing and people are redirecting their hearts toward the Lord. So, how should chapter 4 begin? I thought of a few ways that you'd think chapter four might begin. Here's one. Then Jonah went home rejoicing, for indeed salvation belongs to the Lord. No, that's not how he begins. Maybe it could begin this way. Then Jonah remained in Nineveh 40 days and 40 nights, teaching the people to obey Yahweh. Nope. Maybe this. And Jonah lived a long age, revered as the greatest prophet of all time, for he spoke five words, and the whole city repented. But that's not how it begins. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. How does Jonah respond to a whole city turning to God in repentance? But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. So here's what I want to do today. I want to just walk through this passage, through this chapter 4, and then ask some surgical questions. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. We pray that you would meet us in it. God, would you teach us, reprove us, correct us, train us, equip us for every good work, discern the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. We love you, Lord. Amen. To really understand the dynamic that's happening in verse 1, you have to look also at verse 10, because there's a Hebrew word that is used three times in verse 10 and then verse 1. In English, they translate it the same word three different ways, and so let me show this to you. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, that's the Hebrew word we're looking at, God relented of the disaster, that's the same word, that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, that's the third time. And he was angry. So here's a paraphrase of this. When God saw how Nineveh turned from their disastrous way, God didn't bring about the disaster he warned them about, but Jonah thought that was most disastrous of all. So Jonah is looking at what God did to forgive and to relent against destroying Nineveh, and Jonah's saying, that is evil. That is wicked That is wrong of God to do that. He is standing in moral judgment over God. Why? Well, Jonah finally lets us into his thinking in chapter 4, verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? Finally, we, right, we didn't get this in chapter 1. We didn't know what happened. We just know God told him, go. He said, no. Here's his thinking. He's going, God, I, I knew this was going to happen. Why did he know this was going to happen? He says, that's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew 
that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. God, this is just like you. That's what he's saying. God, this is so you to just forgive these people. What the heck? I knew you were going to do this. And in this verse, he's quoting from Exodus 34. That's the passage we looked at a little bit last week where God describes who he is. He's saying, I I knew what you're like, God. The encouraging thing here is that at least Jonah's frustration comes from a view of who God really is. Most of our frustration comes from our misunderstanding who God is or not taking it really seriously, right? One person said that God created man in his image and man has been returning the favor ever since. But, but Jonah's saying, I'm not making this up, God. This is who you say you are. You say you're gracious. You say you're merciful. You say you're so good and kind. That's my beef with you. I didn't want you to be good and kind to those people. Do you know how evil they are? Do you know how wicked they are? Do you know how much they've hurt me and my people? Do you know how much damage they've done in the world? God, how dare you forgive them? Verse 3, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. I'd rather not live if this is how you're going to be, God. Now, part of it is we've said that Jonah is the patriotic prophet. He was the real pro-Israel prophet, right? And Nineveh was a big enemy. So you can just imagine, he's thinking, when I get home, people are going to be like, what did you say to them? You said, you preached the sermon that made them turn around? What the heck? I thought you were on our team. I don't want to face that. I'd rather die. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Is this right for you to feel this way, Jonah? Jonah, are you sure you have the right to be this? upset. The question doesn't get answered. Instead, we see what Jonah does in verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Remember, his message had been 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. So, right, they all repented pretty quickly. So maybe he's now at like day 37. He's like, well, maybe God will change his mind again. I'm going to set up camp just so I can see it in case he nukes them. Right, so he's sitting on the outside of the city. He doesn't want to go home. He's watching. We don't know exactly what he's watching, but he's probably hoping that maybe God will, in fact, destroy them. Look at God's kind process to Jonah, even in the midst of his temper tantrum. Verse 6, now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade for his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. God is kind. He raises up this plant to give him shade. But God's also kind by helping Jonah see how addicted he is to his own comfort rather than to God's plans. Verse 7, but when, God, but when dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. Do you see that phrase over and over? God appointed, God appointed, God appointed. God is doing all the different things in this story because salvation belongs to the Lord, and God is not just concerned about saving Nineveh, he's concerned about saving Jonah, teaching Jonah, shepherding Jonah, leading Jonah. Verse 8, so when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and he asked that he might die, and said, it is better for me to die than to live. It's interesting, in verse 3, Jonah's questioning God's right to deliver. 
God, how, how dare you deliver those people? How dare you rescue those people? In verse 8, he's questioning God's right to destroy. God, how dare you destroy that plant? I like that. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? That word pity that's used a few times is the word for compassion. You had compassion on the plant. You love the plant. Great. But can't I, the God of heaven and earth, who made all these people in my image, can't I have compassion on them? Now here's what's fascinating. Notice, how does the book of Jonah end? What's the last thing you see there? It's a question mark. Meaning, how did Jonah get resolved? How did Jonah respond? What did he do? Did he go back in the city? Did he stay out there and pout? Did he head back to Israel? We we don't know. Now, why is that important? Because here's, here's, here's what's happening. This cliffhanger, right? This is the cliffhanger. You don't know how this story ends. Why does, why does that happen? It's there so that Hebrews 4 would happen, that it would discern the thoughts and intentions of our hearts as the readers. It's, it's saying, this question really isn't for Jonah. This question's for you. One commentator said, this is as though God drew back an arrow and unleashed it at Jonah, but all of a sudden Jonah vanishes out of sight and you realize it's coming for you. This is the sword that's coming for you to do surgery on you and on me. Will we have Jonah's heart or God's heart? That's the question. So we've got four questions to try to dig into God's heart and our heart. Here's the first one. We'll we'll kind of move from like collective and together down to more individual and specific. Here's the first one. Will we choose to embrace God's heart in this next season for us as a church? Will we choose to embrace God's heart in this next season? This next season is going to be a season where I don't think we'll have 120,000 persons coming to our church. That'd be pretty sweet. You you know why that would be sweet? Because that would mean revival was happening. (laughs) Like, wouldn't that be awesome? So we might have 120,000 new people, uh, but we'll have a few hundred new people, maybe even a few thousand new people over the next few years. All of that is going to change stuff, not because we're even trying to change, not because we want to do anything different, just because it's just going to be different. I really like this quote by Samuel Chand. He wrote a book on leadership, and here's what he says. There's no growth without change, no change without loss, and no loss without pain. Now, that's just true of everything, right? There's some of you who are going through a change. You're having a kid who's graduating, and they're moving on to some next thing, right? That change, that growth in their life, they're moving on to this next thing, they're growing into this next season, means there's a change. That change means there's loss. That loss means there's pain. This is the same for us as a church. Our growth that's going to happen as we move into twice as much square footage, as we invite more people to come actually have room in these services, it's going to change it. It's going to hurt. 
And so we're going to be, over this next year, in this weird dynamic where we'll be celebrating the amazing ways that God's working, and we'll be grieving that things aren't what they were when we got there. I'm feeling this already, right? I'm walking through these buildings, and the TVs are gone, and the decorations are going out. This is our last, this is, today's our last day of worshiping here like a normal thing, and then we'll never do it again. You know, we'll do that kind of weird service next week, and that's it. We'll walk out, hand the landlord their keys. This is it. That, that, I'm grieving that. My, my two youngest kids will never remember having been part of the church in this space. That kind of bumps me out. And yet we're going to be celebrating what God's doing. And so here's the thing. As we move into this season, we cannot be like Jonah, who was more committed to his personal comfort than the movement and heart of God to save lost people. He's all bummed out that his seat isn't as comfortable as it used to be. His shade isn't as nice as it used to be. The way he liked it isn't what it is anymore. And so he's mad. And God's saying, really, Jonah? Don't you see the bigger picture? Don't you get my heart of what I'm trying to do here? Will we choose to embrace God's heart in this next season? Next question, kind of zooming in a bit more. How will you respond when God doesn't run the world your way? You've figured that out by this point in life, haven't you? That God's not running the world your way? You're going, no kidding. Yeah. This is what we call God's sovereignty. I love the description of God's sovereignty in Psalm 115, verse 3. It says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. God is in the heavens. He does what he wants. Well, how do you handle it? How are you going to handle it when God doesn't do life the way you wanted it done? Notice, Jonah's fine with God's sovereignty as long as it is what he wanted, right? He loves it when God appoints the plant. He doesn't like it when God appoints the worm. We're the same way. I had an experience uh, kind of toward the end of last year where all of a sudden my, my shoulder just started hurting. Um, you know, the lifts and different things that I'd been doing and working out, I just couldn't do without a lot of pain anymore, and it, it kind of wasn't getting better week after week after week, and it was getting worse, and I couldn't really wash my, my hair with that hand because I just, it just hurt too bad to raise it. The only time I'd ever had that much pain was when I had to have a shoulder surgery, so I'm thinking, oh man, what happened? What did I do? Well, I went to a, a, a prayer meeting with the pastors and leaders in Redemption, and they encouraged us. They said, hey, if, if you have anything you just want God to heal you from, would you have someone pray for you about it? And I, I didn't even think to have someone pray about it until they said that. But I said, all right, will you, will you guys pray for me? And some people laid their hands on me, and they prayed, and I was healed. And, I, and I, there was music going, and we were praising and worshiping, and I remember kind of going back to where I was standing and going like, Whoa, it works. Like, I can, right? And, I, and I, the whole rest of the day, I kept kind of walking around like, does this hurt? Does this, did God really do it? Like, is that, and I'm telling you, before the Lord, it healed instantly. I'm praising God. I'm so thankful. Oh, way to go. Yeah, Lord, you're the best. How amazing. But then a few months ago, one of my daughters, uh, Caitlin, she was, she was sick for like two weeks of a fever, just day after day after day. And I'm just praying, God. Give her some relief. God, give her some rest. God, heal her. God, touch her body. No, 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 no. 
got a week and a half into it, I'm like, God, what the heck's wrong with you? Like, I, I, here I am laying myself out, praying. God, do you know what kind of faith you could build in this little girl if you would touch her body? Come on, let's go. What are you doing? Isn't that how we are? When God does it the way we want it, yay. When God doesn't do it the way we want it, uh, boo, pitchforks. I'm going to get you, God. God is sovereign, and he's good, and he doesn't consult us on running his world. There's a parable Jesus told about a bunch of, uh, about a, 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 a guy who owned a field, and he needed people to work it. And so in the morning, he, he found some people. He said, hey, here's what, I'll, I'll pay you a day's wage if you work all day and do this field. Then he went out at 9 a.m., and he went out at 11 a.m., and he went out at 3 p.m., and he went out again like at 5 o'clock, right before the end of the day. And each of the different groups, he said, if you work for me for the rest of the day, I'll pay you a full day's wage. So you get to the end of the day, well, the people at the beginning were going, what the heck? we worked all day and you gave us a day's wage. These people worked one hour and you gave them a day's wage. That doesn't seem fair. And the owner of the, of the field says this, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Do you begrudge my generosity? God is sovereign. God saves. It's up to him. And when we say, no, 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 it's got to be this way, we're revealing what our true God is. Here's what author Tim Keller says in his commentary about the book of Jonah. He says, when you say, I won't serve you, God, if you don't give me X, then X is your true bottom line, your highest love, your real God, the thing you most trust and rest in. Jonah's saying, I, God, as long as you let Nineveh live, I can't, I can't do it. I can't be with you. I'd rather die. That's his X. What's your X? What's your ex? Where you draw the line, you say, God, if you let this happen, I'm out. God, if you don't provide this, I don't even want to live. Whatever that is, that's your true God. So may God give us repentance. May God in his kind mercy allow us to see that we are actually, while we say we worship God, we're actually worshiping the things that we're so afraid God might take away or change. May God lead us to repentance where we might be able to say, God, even if this happens, yet I will praise you. How will you respond when God doesn't run the world your way? Here's the third question. Where do you have residual self-righteousness? By the way, we're going to give you space in RCs this week to talk through these questions. Where do you have residual self-righteousness? See, Jonah had had an experience of the mercy of God, hadn't he? Right? He was sinking down, seaweed wrapped around his head, and all of a sudden he's rescued by this fish. He experiences God's mercy. He experiences God's salvation. And he loves experiencing God's mercy. He hates when other people who he doesn't like get God's mercy. Right? The very mercy that he so needed and celebrated, he didn't like it when other people got it. And there's actually a clue as to why this might be. And it seems like it's that Jonah, Jonah knew that God had saved him, but he also, it seems, and we'll see this in just a moment, he also seems to have think he deserved it. Yeah, God saved me. Yeah, it was God's mercy, but I deserved it. Here's the clue. Look at chapter 2, verse 8. 
Back in chapter 2, Jonah's praying, thanking God for the way that he experienced salvation from drowning. And in verse 8, he says this, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It seems in this verse that it's betraying a kind of self-righteousness in Jonah. The pagans, they have idols, but not me. The pagans, they, they don't deserve steadfast love, but I do. They don't deserve mercy, but I do. Listen, if you think you deserve mercy, you don't get mercy. You don't understand it. Because mercy, by definition, means you don't deserve it. You deserve something else. So there's a kind of self-righteousness in Jonah. It reminds us, actually, of the, the parable of the man who had two sons. The man had two sons. This is in Luke 15, and Jesus told this story. Uh, the first son, the younger brother, was the one who had gone, come to him and said, you know what, Dad, I wish you were dead, and you're wealthy, and I just would like my inheritance now, please. And amazingly, the father gives it to him, and he heads off to a distant land. He goes to Vegas, and he spends it and ends up in a place feeding pigs, wishing he could just have some of the food that was falling in the pig's trough. Comes to his senses, you know what, I had it better with my dad. I'll just go back. I'll ask him if, not that I could ever be his son again, but maybe I could just like, like be, be like an employee for him. And maybe I could work hard enough and actually maybe pay him back. And so he rehearses this speech and he comes home. And while he's still a long way off, the father runs and wraps his arms around him and puts the robe on his back and the ring on his finger and says, we're going to slaughter a fattened calf. And he experiences more grace and more mercy and more welcome being back restored into the family than he could have ever imagined. Meanwhile, there's an elder brother. This elder brother's always been doing the right thing. He's always been playing by the rules. He's out actually, while this is happening, working in the field. And he hears commotion and he asks someone, what's, what's going on? What's up with all that noise? And they go, well, your brother's home. His father comes and seeks him. He says, I'm not going in there. He goes, your brother that was lost, you know how we've been hoping he'd come back. You know how we'd hoped he'd come to his senses. And his brother says this, the older brother says this in Luke 15, look, these many years I've served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, right, that's what you do when it's like, right, sometimes I'll say to Molly, uh, your son just did this. That's your way of distancing yourself. This son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, and you killed the fattened calf for him. Many commentators have observed that in the first half of Jonah, he's the younger brother running from God. And in the second half of Jonah, he's the older brother looking down his nose at the younger brother who received such mercy. Where do you have residual self-righteousness? Where you just think, there's this thing that I do, there's this quality about me, and that makes me just a little bit better than other people. It makes me a little more deserving of God's blessing. Maybe you have some religious self-righteousness. You don't just attend church regularly. You attend church regularly every week. And you serve. Thank you, by the way. But that doesn't make you more righteous. 
Maybe you have religious righteousness because you have good theology, not like those TV preachers and those weird books that are always on the Christian bestseller list about your best life now. And like you have good doctrine. So you kind of look down your nose a little bit at people who buy that stuff. Maybe you have parenting self-righteousness because you raise kids God's way. You've made the right choice when it came to school. <laughs> You're not like those terrible parents who send their kids to public school. No, 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 no. Others of you, you've made the right choice because... <laughs> You're not like those crazy homeschool parents who just try to shelter their kids. You've actually sent your kid as a missionary out into the world. <laughs> right? And, and no matter what choice you make, homeschool, public school, Christian school, charter school, no matter what choice you can make, you can think it's the right choice and now you think of yourself just a little bit better. Maybe you have political self-righteousness because you really actually care for the unborn. You don't just post about it. You, you do stuff to help the unborn. Maybe, maybe you have political self-righteousness because you really do things to protect the environment and to actually care for this planet that's falling apart. Maybe you have habit self-righteousness. Right? You're one of the few people you actually exercise consistently. And you go to your annual physical, which most people don't do. And at that annual physical, your doctor says, you're doing great. Keep it up. I wish everyone else was like you. And you think, I do too. <laughs> and, and you have habit self-righteousness because you actually read books. Right? And so when Seth did that announcement about book clubs and he talked about how a lot of people don't read a book after high school, you thought to yourself, <laughs> losers. I've read books. In fact, let me tell you what I'm reading right now. Maybe you have work self-righteousness. You're hardworking. You're kind to the people around you. You're punctual. You handle things the right way. Listen, all of that stuff that I just said, it's all good. It's all good. But if at any point any of that stuff becomes, I'm now better than you, here's what happens. If that's you, then you have to look down at the people who aren't that. If, if you are exercise self-righteous, you have to look down at the people who don't work out. If you are school choice X self-righteous, you have to look down your nose at the people who don't do that choice. You get this? Where is there residual self-righteousness in you? Where you would say, no, 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 I'm saved by grace. I, I, I'm just, I, I just have righteousness because of Jesus. But you function as though... God owes you some blessing because of some things you've done. God is trying to cut that out of your heart. Here's the last question. Who are the people you hope never experience God's mercy? Who are the people you hope never experience God's mercy? Jonah is thrilled about salvation being from the Lord as long as it's for him. But now it's for others? No, 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 I didn't want that. Those people don't deserve it. And, and think about this. If you knew what Jonah knew about Nineveh, you'd probably feel the same way. They were horrible. They tortured people. 
They, they did all kinds of terrible, terrible things. They did all sorts of terrible things to Israel, God's people. If you knew what Jonah knew, if you'd seen what Jonah had seen, you'd probably feel like Jonah felt. You'd say, these people don't deserve mercy. These people don't deserve God's kindness. I don't want this to happen at all. Here's what I know. Some of you have been through hell. Some of you have been deeply mistreated, abandoned, abused. You've, you've had parents or loved ones or people close to you who have done things and said things and not done other things that, that just should not have happened. And maybe even now you're, you're, you're thinking of their faces and thinking, if I got word that they had become a Christian, that they had experienced God's forgiveness, that they now said, hey, I want to come to your church. I don't think I could handle that. And here's what I want to tell you. If I had been through what you've been through, I bet I'd feel the exact same way. So I just want to, I don't want to demand that, hey, you just got to get over it. You just got to turn the page and you just got to forgive and you just got to, you know, you don't have God's heart. Here's what I want you to do is ask yourself, might I be willing to have God take me through a process of changing my heart? Because that's what God does with Jonah. Did you see it? He appoints the plant. He appoints the worm. He appoints the, the wind. He asks the question. He's tenderly leading Jonah out of his bitterness, out of his resentment, out of his hatred. Are you open, not to just feeling better right away, but are you open to what God might want to do in changing your heart to draw you out to have the kind of compassion and mercy and grace that God has? Josh Watt preached a few weeks ago, and I loved the line that he said, that God whispers in Jonah, but he shouts in Jesus. He whispers in Jonah and he shouts in Jesus. And I just couldn't help but think of Jesus when I read verse 5 of chapter 4, where it said, Jonah went out of the city and sat east of the city to see what would become of the city. Jonah went outside the city to root for its destruction. And I couldn't help but think of Jesus, who also went outside the city to die for its salvation. God whispers in Jonah. God shouts in Jesus. This is the heart of God. This is the kindness and the mercy of God to lead us to repentance, to die for his enemies, to say on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Maybe we're not there yet. Maybe we won't be there for a long time, but will we open ourselves up to becoming people who more and more and more have the heart of Jesus who was sinned against and died for those who sinned against him? That's the heart of God. That's what Jonah is inviting us to pursue. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for how you 
do surgery on us. God, thank you for the way that you try to remove the cancers in our hearts that are bent on just our own comfort and our own desires. God, thank you that you gently and kindly and firmly lead us to repentance. Thank you for your heart. God, we ask you now that you would give us more and more of your heart. I pray especially for those who've been hurt in in ways that they would never even want to talk about. God, would you lovingly nurture and shepherd them? And would you give all of us your heart of compassion? We pray in Christ's name, amen.